Good, good morning. For those who are visiting, don't know who I am. One of the pastors here. Good to be here. This, this Sunday is always good. I woke up this morning, though, with a thought. Because there is, on, on Easter Sunday, there is this elation, right? Right? But we live in that reality all, every day. Like, like you, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like we've been waiting, waiting, waiting for this to happen, for Jesus to finally rise. And he did today. No. That's where we live. <laughs> and I was like, how do I stay there? How do I stay in that place? Anyway, um, the resurrection, you know, as I, as I stood back there against the wall, and was, I really appreciated, Glenn, you bringing out that the resurrection Sunday when Jesus resurrected that morning, it wasn't all crystal clear with everybody. Uh, with, with the disciples, his followers. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, near the end, uh, right in Matthew 28, it, uh, I believe it says something about that Jesus was with his disciples and some of them doubted, right? There was some doubt that was going on. And that's the reality. It wasn't crystal clear. And it's the same today as well. There's people that, you know, need the whole thing about proof, and one of, the, one of the interesting things is, is that when the writers in the New Testament talk about the resurrection of Jesus, for them, it's a matter of certainty, especially for Paul. And Paul's an interesting one because Paul was actually an enemy of the cross, of the Christian faith, when Jesus was around. He wasn't there when Jesus was resurrected. Paul met him on the road to, of Damascus, and, I, and my belief is that Paul met the resurrected Jesus. There was some sort of interaction there, but he even described himself as one abnormally born or something like that. But this whole thing about proof, we live in a, in a time in history where we like the scientific proof. We want proof of things. That if you can't prove it, then I, I will dismiss it, right, typically. And there's generally one of two ways we, we approach this. One is if I can't see it, I don't believe it, right? And the other one is if bring me an expert who can either prove or disprove it, and that will help me. We like that. When we have someone who, as a matter of fact, this is it, it gives us some sort of reassurance. But the problem with that first statement of, I need to see it for me to believe it, is that an event may have occurred at some point that can't be repeated. And because I can't see it, therefore I will dismiss it. It's a very weak argument to say, because I didn't see it, I don't believe it, to dismiss it. The other one about needing an expert or a scientist is this. Scientists will tell you, because science and technology has discovered many things for our benefits, for how, how our human bodies work, how the universe functions and that. They, you know, what they've discovered is amazing. But they will tell you that what they find and what they think they've seen and what they think they've found, they hold it loosely because, lo and behold, 10, 20 30 years later, somebody's going to come along and say, you know what, actually, you're mistaken. And they'll say, you know, even our human body, doctors and researchers haven't figured out the brain, how it works, how it functions. What is that? What is consciousness, right? So you got to hold that loosely. So even if somebody could come and say, you know, disprove something, it's eh, maybe, maybe, you know. 
Doubts about the resurrection are not just with non-believers either. Um, they're also with believers. There's believers that, I know it sounds sort of funny, right? There's believers that doubt the resurrection. And you go, well, how, how can that be? How, how can you be a believer and doubt? But we question. We don't know. And sometimes what it is, what we're really leaning on, is what I would call blind faith. Right? You take that leap into the dark and just hope it's true. But we'll say it, because <laughs> it's the right thing to say, right? And, uh, and the question is, is that what we do? Is it, do? Do we need to have the blind faith? And I don't believe we do. Because I'm faced with the letters of Paul, of Peter, of James, of John, the Gospels, and the resurrection, for them, is a matter of fact. You know, our home church right now, we're, we're walking through the Gospel of Luke. And Luke states right at the beginning, uh, he's writing that, that Gospel to his friend Theophilus. And he's wanting him to be very sure of the things you have been taught. And one of the things Luke records in his Gospel is the resurrection. Luke was very methodical, very, he investigated closely everything he had heard. So... I believe that it's not blind faith at all. So then you have to ask the question, what's the foundation for our belief that the resurrection actually did occur? Well, if you, I want to go to 1 Corinthians. And by the way, so what, one of the things I appreciate about Paul, so we always say that Paul wrote, you know, uh, Romans, 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, you know, and so on and so forth. Did you know who, who, gets, who gets forgotten about in his letters, such as 1 Corinthians, is also was uh, Sosthenes, who wrote that with him. Paul includes him in that letter. He says, this is a letter from that. And he also includes in his other letters, Timothy, Timothy and Silas, together in some of his letters, that they, that they, he says, this letter is from us. Just want to give them a fair shake. <laughs> you know. But anyway, in 1 Corinthians, uh, one, of the, 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 one of the core issues that um, Paul, and we'll, we'll use that Paul these are Paul's words. One of the issues that Paul is addressing is there's been a notice that there's been, what's been creeping into the church is some doubt that the dead do rise, that there is a resurrection of the dead at some point. And Paul wants to address that. And, and, and where, you find them, where you find Paul addressing it is right near the end. It's in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And basically what Paul says is this. He, he, this is how he goes. I'm not going to read it all because I want to shorten things here. But what he says is, um, if there is no resurrection of the dead, and he logics it out. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't risen. And if Christ hasn't risen, we are preaching a lie and your faith is useless. These are, these are basically the words he is using. Bottom line, what he is saying, that if our only hope for this life, if that's our only hope, if the, if, if the purpose of Jesus coming is hope for this life only, then he said we should be more pitied than anyone else. And basically what Paul is saying is, if you remove the resurrection, everything collapses. That's what Paul is saying. That's the hard line he's coming at. That if it's not true, then the whole thing gets dismissed. And you're faced with that. It's like that's one of the things you can't pull out. And uh, 
what Paul writes immediately after that is, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you have to ask the question, Paul, how is it that since you didn't physically see the resurrection, you weren't a witness to it, how are you so certain? How are you so certain, Paul? What is it? What is the foundation you have built this certainty on? And for that, you need to go back to the beginning of the letter. And in the beginning of the letter, they address that there's divisions in the church. You got some people saying, I follow Paul. I'm a Pauline person, right? And you got some people saying, well, I'm Apollos. No, he's my man. And others, you know, saying, I know I follow Peter. I like Peter. I can identify with him. And others, and Paul writes, others are saying they follow Christ. And his question is, what, is Christ divided? Do we divide it up? And so what, what Paul and Sosthenes, goes, they go to work trying to bring people back to what is center, which is Jesus Christ. That's where they want to bring them back to. And what he says in chapter 1, I'm going to read to you two verses, and then I'll just give a brief explanation of what they say further on that. But Paul says this, this is chapter 1, verse 18, that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Because as the scriptures say, and he quotes from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. And what Paul is showing here is that what God uses are the things we consider foolish. right? And, and what's interesting and what, how, what, how Paul unpacks that, it sounds those, those foolish things because Paul says he chooses the powerless, the despised, the weak, right? And it sounds, you know, you know what it has a tone of? It has the tone of what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the ones who are mourning, right? You, you know, those Beatitudes sounds very similar to that. And what Paul is saying is that what we seem as the foolish things God uses it, it destroys the wisdom and it destroys the intellect of human because we don't understand it. We don't get it. He said it's, it was frustrating for the Jews and it's frustrating for the Greeks. Uh, Jews, they want a sign from heaven. They want some big show to prove that you are who you say you are. The Greeks want to have it figured out. They want to use their human wisdom and Paul says it doesn't work that way. But I want to go back to that, that verse, uh, verse 18, that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. And the, the questions that demand an answer are, what exactly is the message of the cross? That's one question. And the second question is, what is this power of God that raised Jesus from the dead? That's the question that has to be asked because Paul is in pursuit of this. And you start to get a hint that this is the foundation that Paul built everything on when he, as he walked things through. Now, so we're just, we're just hitting this like a flat rock stone hitting the water, right? Just skipping. <laughs> so, so you, you want to go explore this deeper, but we're going to skip it like a stone. So here we go. In answer to the first question, it's not the cross in and of itself. That has the message. The message comes from what occurred on the cross. That's the message of the cross. And that answer, that answer, what is the message? 
it's declared many places throughout scripture. I'm going to give you two, and you can dig further if, if you so desire. But here's the message. First one we're all familiar with is verse, John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. The other one I want to give you this morning is Paul's letter to Timothy, the one he was mentoring. He writes this to Timothy. This is in chapter 2, verse 6. This is the first letter to Timothy. Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, which is the work of the cross, reconciling God and humanity. And that's the man Christ Jesus Note Paul's words here now. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. That is the message of the cross. What it comes down to is this. It's God's love for humanity. That's what you see going on with the cross. It's what you see. There's nothing else that is being displayed here. God's passionate love and and God's love for humanity. That's the motivator behind everything that God does. Uh, The two foundational commandments Jesus spoke, one is recorded in uh, Matthew 22, 37, 38. You know, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. Second is equal, love your neighbor as yourself foundational, foundational for Jesus. The whole gospel is built on that. I want you to consider that every miracle, every miracle that Jesus did was not to, you know, some show his power, shazam, his lightning coming down. That was not it at all. The motivator for Jesus and healing people and touching people and and, and, and healing whoever came to him He had compassion for them. He wept for them. He saw the pain. He saw the confusion. He saw people who were marginalized, pushed to the edges of society, pushed beyond the edges, pushed on the outside, not allowed in to certain quarters of the, in the places of Israel and how the world treated others. And it was compassion, the compassion of God that brought healing and it's, the, it's, it's that compassion that is the proof that the kingdom is among us. That's the proof that the kingdom is here. God's compassion for people. Returning to, I want to go back to the first letter in Corinthians. There we're all familiar with that partway through Corinthians, Paul addresses, addresses them about the spiritual gifts. You know, we all, we, 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 we agree with the spiritual gifts. They're good. We want them and that. And Paul, and Paul is teaching them how to use them, what their place is in our faith. And, uh, and, he, and he encourages the church to desire the spiritual gifts. We need to desire them. They are good. They're from the Holy Spirit. But Paul says this. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all it's best of all 
And what does he go into in chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians 13? What does he say? He says, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, if I could speak in all the different tongues, if I could prophesy, be the greatest prophet going around, if I could understand God's plans and have all knowledge and have great faith and give my life as a sacrifice, if I could do all that, but I don't have love, it's nothing. It is absolutely not. Paul dismisses it all if love is not involved. Where does Paul get that from? Because that's how Christ that's how that's how Christ operated. That was his MO. He was motivated by love for people. And whatever Jesus did, he did out of love for us. And what you see at the cross is that is that is the epitome of God's love for humanity to reconcile us. To reconcile us back. This is good news, man. This is great news. And love is not only the message of the cross, it is also what Paul says, the power of God that raised Jesus. It's not, the, it's not like power that we understand here in this world, because we think of might, strength. You know, countries go, well, I have more weapons than you do, and my weapons are bigger than your weapons, and that's power. That's, how, that's who we consider the powerful nations. And that's not, that's not the kingdom at all. That's not the kingdom way at all. All the powers combined cannot even come close to the power of God's love. Cannot. God's love is the ultimate power in the universe. I will stand on that. Because that's all I pick up from Paul, from, from, from the Gospels, from James, from Peter, from John, from Revelation. Why do you think when Glenn uh, was re- referencing Revelation 5, where thousands and millions of angels gather around the throne, and they're just praising God? For what? For the love of God and what God has done reconciling humanity to himself. Because it's amazing. It's more than they can understand. The four living beasts, all they can, all they can say is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's all they can say. And they keep on saying it. And you wonder, how, how do you keep on saying it? Because they can't, they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by it all. Love conquers everything. And it was love that conquered death in the tomb. And it was love that raised Christ to new life. And it will be love that raises us to new life in the resurrection. It's love all through. That's the message of the cross that's coming from the cross. So then you have to ask the question, what's the proof that Jesus is resurrected? And for that, I want to go to a a book I stumbled upon little book uh, called The Inconvenient Gospel. It's writings and talks given by Clarence Jordan. Who's him? Don't know. (laughs) No, I do. Well, no, I do. If you've ever heard of the Cotton Patch Gospel, that came from Clarence Jordan. Okay, he wrote that. He, he, He started to write some of the New Testament. And he's a true southerner from Georgia, right? So he's like dyed in the wool. Right, he was. When I go, how far back? Back in the forties, thirties, forties, long time ago. <laughs> he uh, he and his wife they um, bought a huge tract of land in Georgia, created a farm called Koinonia. Forties in the forties. Okay, keep that in mind in the forties, so that both blacks and whites could live together because they wanted to show to the world that whole thing of racism is not of the kingdom. It's not of the kingdom. That we can live together in harmony in the 40s in Georgia. 
I want to read to you how he, the, the latter part. It's going to sound like a southern, okay? <laughs> That's how he talks. This is what he says. And I'm talking about, I asked the question, so what's the proof that Jesus was resurrected? Where's the proof? And he writes, you know, on Easter Day, all of us get prettified and we get on our nice garments. We get our flowers and perfume and we talk about Jesus being raised from the dead and how he's going to take us all to heaven one of these days. If we go to the Easter sunrise services every sunrise until we die, he's going to take us to heaven when we die. Well, that might be nice, but that is not what the resurrection of Jesus is all about. God did not raise Jesus from the dead to prove that he could raise a few cantankerous saints. He could do that. Man's belief in his own immortality had been very persistent, not only in the Christian religion, but outside of it. And God raised Jesus from the dead for a different purpose. When Jesus came in his first body, people didn't like having God around. It was a bad place for God to be, sort of like having a preacher in the barbershop. We felt uncomfortable with him here, so we had to get rid of him. We nailed him to the cross and said, you go back home, God, don't you mess around down here. We have to watch our language too much with you around, and we have to watch our ledger accounts too much when you're looking over our shoulder, and we have to be too careful on Saturday night when we're hitting the bottle rather heavy. Now you, God, you go home where you belong and be a good God, and we'll see you at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. In raising Jesus from the dead, God is refusing to take our no for an answer. He is saying, you can kill my boy if you wish, but I'm going to raise him from the dead and put him right smack dab down there on earth again. It is God saying, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to raise him up, plant his feet on the earth and put him to preaching, teaching and healing again. So the resurrection of Jesus was simply God's unwillingness to take our no for an answer. He raised Jesus not as an invitation to us to come to heaven when we die, but as a declaration that he himself has now established permanent, eternal residence on earth. The resurrection places Jesus on this side of the grave, here and now, in the midst of this life. He is not standing on the shore of eternity, beckoning us to join him there. He is standing beside us, strengthening us in this life. The good news of the resurrection of Jesus is not that we shall die and go home with him, but that he has risen and comes home with us. Bringing with him all his hungry, naked, thirsty, sick, prisoner brothers and sisters with him. And we say, Jesus We'd be glad to have you. But all those motley brothers and sisters of yours, you had better send them home. You come in and we'll have some fried chicken. But you get your sick, naked, and cold brothers and sisters out of here. I don't want them getting my new rug all messed up, which I just got through vacuuming. The resurrection is simply God's way of saying, you might reject me if you will, but I'm going to have the last word. I'm going to put my son right down there in the midst of you and, is, and he is going to dwell among you from here on out. And he concludes with these words. So on the morning of the resurrection, God put life in the present tense, not in the future. He gave us not a promise, but a presence. Not a hope for the future, but power for the present. Not so much the assurance that we shall live someday, but that he is risen today. 
Jesus' resurrection is not to convince the incredulous nor to reassure the fearful, but to enkindle the believers. The proof that God raised Jesus from the dead is not the empty tomb, but the full hearts of the transformed disciples. The crowning evidence that he lives is not a vacant grave, but a spirit-filled fellowship. Not a rolled away stone, but a carried away church. We are the evidence of the resurrection. I think he was on to something there. Paul had encountered that love, and you see that all throughout his letters. Paul had encountered this love that just blew him away. And it brought him to the realization that all of his accomplishments, Paul says this, that all of his accomplishments were rubbish, and there was only one thing that he now desired. And this is found in Philippians 3, uh, uh, verses 10 to 11. And Paul says these words, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. That's the message of the cross, and that's the power of God that raised Jesus and will raise us as well. That's it. And that's what we want. That's what I want anyway. I don't know about you. Let me pray right now. Father God, Lord, we love and are overwhelmed by what you do for humanity, what you do for us, how you invite us into a way. In fact, Lord Jesus, you you went all the way through the suffering to the cross, not because you were dragged there, not because you were taken there, but because you willingly gave yourself for us, for humanity. And Jesus, we just want to declare today how much we we love you. We don't have words to describe how we feel. We don't have words to describe just how grateful and thankful we are. But Father, we do look forward to that day when we will join with the angels around the throne. And declare that you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That you are the one that is worthy. And any rewards we get, Lord, we will throw down at your feet. For it all comes back to you, Jesus. You are the center. It's as that saying goes that was quoted in Acts. In you we move and we breathe. We have our being. It's found in you, Lord. We trust you. And we love you. And we say, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord.